Welcome to the Dispatches Podcast. I'm Bramwell Ryan. Today we have another show on the Lake Winnipeg series. I'll be speaking with Lorraine Land, an Aboriginal lawyer who works with First Nations across Canada. She spends a lot of time on land issues, and of course that extends into the practical details of safeguarding nature and what it means to act as an environmental steward. Because of that, she has lots of frontline experience digging into the weeds of what it means to live in harmony with nature rather than in opposition. But she's also thought about this in a wider sense. Does every resource development or treaty or land protection issue always start and end in the specific? Or are there principles and broader concepts that could make things better, cut through the fog, and perhaps even speed up negotiations? There might be. There's a new development in the environmental law field about a concept called earth jurisprudence, or the rights of nature. The idea is about granting aspects of nature legal standing or making them persons in the legal sense. Now that might seem strange. It's hard to imagine a tree turning up in court to argue that a logging company shouldn't cut it down, but a corporation can go to court to argue that someone broke a contract or used their trademark without permission. Now a corporation can only turn up in court or have legal standing because as a society we've granted personhood to corporations. And as a result, in many ways, a company can act as a person and have real people speak and act on its behalf. Corporations have been persons long enough that most of us don't even think about the strangeness of it. But it is an act of the imagination and a collective agreement that allows an inanimate thing to become a person. So is it any different that some are pushing for aspects of nature to be granted personhood? It's happening elsewhere. In New Zealand, the Wanganui River is now a person. More than a decade ago, Ecuador and Bolivia legally recognized the rights of Mother Earth. Colombia gave legal personhood to the El Trato River in 2017, and the next year extended that to the Amazon. In one area of the northern United States, wild rice has been granted legal standing. In India, the Ganges River was declared a living entity three years ago. Here in Canada, some people are pushing for bison to be declared persons. And we'll be speaking with one of those advocates next week. But for now, we're speaking with Lorraine Land to help us better understand what earth jurisprudence actually means. How would it change things in this country? And, of course, since this is part of the Lake Winnipeg series on dispatches, we'll be looking at this through the lens of what it might mean if the lake was recognized as a person. Would it do anything to improve the health of the lake? Let's find out. This is another in a series of full interviews I'm posting as part of the Lake Winnipeg series. That's a collaborative journalism project hosted by Dispatches. The idea is that together we can create a compelling story about how we've hurt the lake and find ways to undo the damage. This is your invitation to listen to what Lorraine Land has to say. Help me identify the key insights needed to build this story and let me know what stands out for you. See the show notes for links and be in touch. Thanks for listening to the Dispatches podcast. I'm Bramwell Ryan. I'm Lorraine Land, and I'm a lawyer who practices Aboriginal law within the Canadian legal system, which is different than Indigenous law. Indigenous law is the law that Indigenous communities have themselves based on their customs and norms. 
My expertise is in the Canadian law as it applies to Indigenous communities. I work with a firm called Oltheus Clear Townshend, and we represent Indigenous communities coast to coast to coast in Canada. Um, we're one of the largest specialized uh, legal firms in this field. And in that context, I have uh, had some issues arising about the questions of the um, rights of nature, because it's not always a good fit between Canadian law and Indigenous perspectives about how you protect environmental values or even what those environmental values are, or even for that matter, having something that's completely separate called the environment, as opposed to people's relationship with their territories and resources. You're a lawyer working in Toronto on Aboriginal First Nations issues. It seems like you're a long way away from where a lot of the action happens. How did you end up there? Yeah, so actually I work out of two offices, an office in Toronto, an office in Yellowknife. Uh, up until the COVID-19 situation, about 50% of my time was actually in the small communities, particularly in the far north, in the Northwest Territories and Nunavut. Um, so part of my work means building a relationship with the communities that I work with. Uh, as part of being a good advocate to ensure that I really am understanding their context and finding the best ways for them to speak for themselves on the issues that matter for them. This phrase, rights of nature, standing, explain if you could for the layperson, what does this mean? Rights of nature has been something that is a concept evolving in law around the world. Indigenous communities particularly are looking at it with interest because it does relate to an Indigenous perspective as opposed to mainstream perspectives which see nature as somehow separate from human activity. The rights of nature is a process of recognizing that aspects of nature like a river, like a forest, like wild rice have their own legal rights and that's based on the assumption that they have an identity and uh, some agency that means that they're not just instruments or inanimate resources that humans can control at will without consequences. This really came onto the scene with um, in New Zealand and it was followed I think within days in India and other places have granted rights to inanimate objects. But does this go much farther back or is it a fairly recent concept? It's a recent concept in terms of national governments taking steps to actually protect in national constitutions, for instance, the rights of nature. The concept goes back as far as, for instance, Indigenous cultures go back because in most Indigenous communities, there is an understanding that rivers or rocks or uh, other aspects of what we would call nature in the mainstream society do have agency, do have identity, that you have a relationship. And because there's a relationship, there's a sense of uh, mutual responsibilities, mutual obligations, and also often strong cultural senses of the rights of protection, the right to be healthy. So that would be fundamental to the relationship often between an Indigenous community and the traditional, what we would call resources in their territory or the land or whatever. So yes, it's a fairly recent concept in terms of national governments recognizing it. It's less of a recent concept in terms of it, it is very much part of often non-Western worldviews. And it's interesting to see now steps being taken to look at it as a viable option and 
when governments make choices about how do you protect aspects of the public good, that this is one valid choice. It's been a choice that's been made fittingly somewhat in other countries, but I don't think it has been in Canada. Are there examples of nature being granted rights or standing in our country? Not that I'm aware of. I think that we're not far off. There's certainly an interest in Indigenous communities and in the environmental law community uh, to look at opportunities, particularly when some of the examples come closer to home. For instance, Uh, Right across the border in Minnesota, the White Earth Ojibwe have given uh, rights to Monoman wild rice. Those Ojibwe communities are culturally linked to, and in fact, there's a lot of traffic back and forth with the Anishinaabe communities on the Canadian side. So there's a high level of awareness um, that the uh, relatives in the uh, United States side of the border have taken these steps, for instance, which is stimulating some active discussion within the Anishinaabe communities on the Canadian side that are related cultural communities. So to the best of my knowledge, not yet, but it's definitely coming down the line, I think. Uh, There's always an ongoing process of determining how the law evolves, particularly in a common law situation. The law is always evolving. Choices were made in 1982, for instance, about what was protected in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. A decision was made, for instance, not to protect individual property rights. That was a very deliberate decision. There's always campaigning for reform to protect individual property rights. Um, At some point when constitutional reform becomes more politically viable, because it's not right now, just given some of the current political climate, then at that point when there is some consideration of constitutional reform, I suspect this is going to be something that gain some more traction in terms of public discussion. Should we be protecting the rights of nature? Is this a concept that stands in abstract or is it part of trends within Canadian law? It really reflects two trends. One is trends in environmental law. As the environmental law community has been looking at some of the gaps in our legal systems that mean that we don't do a very good job of protecting the earth that we rely on, that we live with, there's always interest in looking at how to do better, particularly in a context where over the last 15 years, we've had some real retrenchment and rolling back of environmental protections, some of which are swinging back around. So that's the one track is the environmental law community. Indigenous communities are raising it because it comes up often in their discussions about how do you protect your traditional lands and resources. We have a situation in Canada right now where there have been two legal trends happening at the same time. One legal trend is increasing recognition of Indigenous rights with respect to their traditional lands. So for instance, the whole duty to consult and accommodate processes, which have been strengthened over the last 20 years, at the same time as the other trend has been happening, which is retrenchment, rolling back of environmental protections, stripping away of some of the protections in environmental regulatory regimes. So now you have a situation where Indigenous communities increasingly bear the burden of protecting the environment for the public good. You see that in situations like the Trans Mountain pipeline debates, for instance, where the real legal hooks to address the environmental concerns about that project and signal about whether it's a responsible project or not flow out of the Aboriginal rights protection frameworks, 
rather than the hooks available in environmental law. And there's some issues, I think, that we can raise about that in terms of, you know, should it be Indigenous communities who have to bear the responsibility for the greater public good of protecting the environment? So I think it's a good thing that there's work underway to look at our public responsibility of a society as a whole to look at how we have healthy relationships with nature. Don't just leave it to Indigenous communities to have to protect it on behalf of the greater good. I won't use a specific example because we might get mired in the weeds on that, but if a natural feature, whether a river or a lake, was granted standing in this case, what tangible difference would that make? Is that simply another tool in an already fulsome toolbox or is this a bit of a trump card to try to unblock the halting progress of environmental protection and indigenous issues and rights? I think if you had the recognition of the rights of nature, it would allow for a more in-depth and nuanced understanding of what the impacts are when we make decisions, for instance, about development. I can give you one example. I've been involved in caribou management hearings in the Northwest Territories. And from a Dene perspective, from an Indigenous perspective, the identity of caribou and humans are actually the same. There are traditional teachings about how caribou and humans are the same being who have just shifted physical manifestations over time. And when the Dene communities were looking at their participation in, in caribou management hearings, one of the questions that came up from the elders was, how do the caribou testify? And it was a legitimate question because in their culture, there are actually very strict norms that say, you don't talk about caribou behind their back, you respect them. And so how do you have a respectful process that makes decisions about these other beings without them having a voice in the process? And they decided, and this particular uh, wildlife management board decided to take evidence in the form of traditional stories where the caribou talked for themselves. The caribou in those traditional stories told about the norms and their relationship with the people, their norms and their relationships with the wolves, what kind of patterns you could expect in terms of caribou behavior. So that actually became evidence and it was a way of the caribou speaking for themselves in the hearings. But it points to an important question, which is, how does a river, how does wild rice, how do caribou speak for themselves in these proceedings? Particularly if you have a sense that they have some or should have some agency in the matter, that they're not just tools for human manipulation at human will. Well, in the examples elsewhere, like in New Zealand, when a natural feature has been granted standing, then guardians are appointed or, or brought to bear to speak on behalf of the welfare of that feature. But I'm wondering, maybe it's nuanced here, but here in Canada, the Crown, because if land isn't privately held, then in most cases it's Crown land, and the Crown should act as guardian of that land. So is the search or the the attempt to try to get standing for nature, uh, a way of saying the Crown hasn't been doing a great job and we need to go in a, a different way and try a different path? I think it's more accurate to say the Crown is in a situation where they have internally conflicting interests. The Crown is responsible for economic development. The Crown often receives royalties from resource development. For instance, the amount of royalties received from mining and oil and gas projects across the far north is 
phenomenal. Just the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, for instance, has generated eight to nine billion dollars of profit for the federal government over the last 35 years. So the Crown has competing internal interests. It has to promote economic development. It has to ensure the protection of Indigenous rights. It has to look at its own ability to generate revenue. It is balancing environmental protections with other matters. So sometimes in that equation, the interests of the aspects of nature themselves don't have the strongest voice within the Crown decision-making umbrella. So this is a way to, if you will, take apart conflicted loyalties and have a, a singular voice for this particular natural object. So, The other important issue here is that we approach these issues of who has what rights and deserves what protections through a cultural lens. And part of what the rights of nature discussions look at is challenging that cultural lens that says aspects of nature parts of nature like rivers, like wild rice, have no agency. They, they have no identity. They are not living. And that's one cultural worldview. It's not the only cultural worldview. And in fact, we have evidence that it's a cultural worldview that is potentially very destructive to our long-term existence on this planet. So part of this is trying to rebalance potentially overly narrow scope of understanding about what our relationship with the natural world is in order to protect all of us, humans, the earth, these natural features, and so on. There's many who would just scratch their head. They couldn't get their their mind around this. But uh, when one explains to them that corporations are considered persons, that's a rather artificial construct too, but it's one that we accept and just doesn't seem unusual. That's exactly right. That's the example I often use that when we talk about who has rights, nobody questions anymore whether corporations have legal standing as quote-unquote persons. They have all the rights associated that with that. They can bring legal actions. They can participate in legal proceedings. They can purchase property. In fact, ironically, First Nations under Canadian law do not have legal identity as persons, and that has been a fight just to, to allow that same identity to be recognized in law for First Nations. But it does raises question, who do you recognize and, and how? And those are decisions that are being constantly reevaluated and that evolve over time. And now is the time to be thinking about the rights of nature as part of that evolution of the law. How likely do you think it is that the law here in Canada will evolve in that way? I'm fundamentally an optimist. I think it will and it has to. It has to for our survival. It will because of the tenacity and the passion and intelligence of the people who are advocating for that now. It's gonna happen, it's just a question of when and, and how it happens. And I think when it does happen, it's going to involve indigenous communities playing an important role in that because not only have they been at the forefront of these discussions so far in Canada, there is a natural link with Indigenous understandings of relationships with uh, the natural world. So I'm looking forward to seeing that evolve. Part of my fascination or my motivation for this story is it pertains to Lake Winnipeg, as I mentioned, and the fact that for at least 30, if not longer, uh, years, um, the health of the lake, the injury to the lake, it becomes in worse and worse condition all the time. And there's always sort of an announcement here or a pronouncement there or a small project here, a small project there, and nothing in aggregate ever seems to make a difference to anything. And I just wondered if this might be 
I have yet to find anyone who's pushing for this in terms of Lake Winnipeg, but uh, wondering if it might be, as I mentioned before, a tool to try to force some action rather than just more inertia, if you will. I think Lake Winnipeg is an excellent example of how the concept of the rights of nature could be explored and make a real and meaningful difference. You have a situation with Lake Winnipeg where there has been systematic degradation of that very important water body. You have a situation where Indigenous communities from that Treaty 1 area have relationships, profound relationships with that water body and talk about that in very passionate ways. It's very much part of an Indigenous worldview from that region that they live in relationship to that lake, not only the lake, but the way that the lake then ends up emptying into the northern watersheds. And, you know, we have this uh, history where tampering with those lake levels in that hydrodynamic system in that Lake Winnipeg system has had profound ecological devastating impacts on in northern Manitoba and particularly on Indigenous communities. So it seems to me that it would be one of the specific situations that would be ripe for looking at the rights of nature. What is the right of that lake? What can we learn from the Indigenous communities who understand the relationship that that lake has with all the living beings around it and in the downstream watershed? So I think it's an excellent example of of how the rights of nature could make a really meaningful difference in a situation where we've had profound ecological degradation and destruction. Well, time will tell in this case. I have more people to interview. I've already interviewed about 14 professors and scientists and so on and so forth. And that's actually the point I got to is that everyone keeps saying about what might happen and no one's talking about how it can actually tangibly happen within our lifetimes, uh, some change.